Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. At the end of the day, when they're in your domain and they're talking to you, whether it's about you or your work, that trust is a commodity that's truly priceless. And it takes a long time to build, but a relatively short time to be ignored. The smartest people in the room are the ones that listen. And you can usually tell that people that get things done are not the ones that are front and center as the critical mouthpiece to an organization or a group of people. It's usually the person that's quiet because you can give better advice and give better direction if you truly, truly listen. You have to have people that work for you that you can envision being in the position that you're in. You're not able to be promoted unless you have somebody that can fill your shoes with equal or greater value. I am talking with Robert Miller, who is my good friend. Robert, why don't you describe what your day job is? So I am Senior Vice President for Parsons Missile Defense and C5ISR Business Unit. And so my job is to deliver sales to the tune of X amount of millions per year for this business unit. Can you say how many millions? This year, it'll be uh, right under a billion. Is that how you get measured is like how many dollars are brought in? What is your major KPI that they evaluate you on? Revenue sold. So that's gross sales, gross profit or GPS against that net margin as sold, which is kind of GPS. And then that equates to top line revenue sold for Parsons overall federal market. Now, what is C5 ISR? What does that mean in like layman's terms? Yeah, layman's terms, I would consider it a scope domain. So each one of those domains from a entity standpoint, whether it's the Army, whether it's the Air Force, plays in those domains. So when you say C5 ISR, command and control is one example, is a domain into itself. Uh, intelligence is a domain into itself. Surveillance into itself. Reconnaissance into itself. So as you go down, each domain is just an additive. But collectively, when you look at something like join all domain, C5 ISR plays a significant role in what will be the future of JADC2 per se. What is JADC2? What did you just say? What is it? <laughs> Joint all domain C2. You are jargon upon jargon. So this is one of the hardest things I think people have into breaking into GovCon is like, not only do they not use the words, but then they create an acronym for the words and then they create an acronym for the acronym. Sure. So it's, it's basically the DOD's concept to connect sensors for all the military services. So when you think about the Army or the Air Force or the Marine Corps or the Navy and now Space Force being consolidated into a single network to operate uh, in military combat, that is a concept known as joint So everything domain. is a sensor. Uh, ship is a sensor. All of the things on the ship are a sensor. The yep. super secret drone that looks like a fly is a sensor. All those things are sensors pooling in data that must be processed. Correct, because it's all about the data and being able to make intelligible decisions with speed. That's what it comes down to. If it's not interconnected, interoperable, we're failing. I'm about to blow Robert's mind because he doesn't know my name is actually Shana. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only person, only person who calls me Shana. So I call it Shauna only because I had a an aunt of mine. Um, when she lived in Georgia, she was named Lana. Then she moved to Colorado, and then she became Lana. 
So <laughs> when I met you, I just equated Shana to Shauna. You know, I correct even random robocallers on my name, but I have never corrected you. You have a sweet spot. See, there you go. What I found interesting about our friendship and relationship is one, you always gave me advice. Felt free to tell me how to come across and do better as a small business to a large business because you were working at a large business at the time and you had previously worked for a small business that grew to over, what, 100 and sold? Yeah, it was a little over 100, 100 folks, a little over 30 million annual revenue. Now, you're younger than me by like maybe 10 years and you've never been an engineer and yet... I learn so much from you every time we talk. And maybe I just like that you also give unsolicited advice like I do. Do you do that with all companies or business people? I think it started with my family. So I'm the one that's relatively loud uh, in my family. So if you don't know, I have a twin brother. So I've had a built-in competitor my entire life. I had no idea you had a twin brother. How are we even friends? What is his name? Randy. Are you identical? No, we're fraternal. So if you looked at us, you probably wouldn't even know we were brothers. He's quiet. I'm a little bit outspoken. So I think it started with that. And then I'm just, it's just in my nature. I think I'm an eternal optimist, but I'm also a perfectionist at the end of the day. I like the things to be right, whether I think I'm right or not. My wife says I'm, I'm not right all the time. <laughs> but yes, I love giving you know my advice to optimize whatever situation I'm in. I want to thank you because... Your advice has really been very beneficial to me. And you and Caitlin, who have very different perspectives and are so much younger, have been extremely valuable in your advice. And then I think you and Caitlin, and there's like one other, are probably the biggest impact on my life and professional life. So thank you, Robert. No, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that I would attribute my success to is being around relatively smart people. And the more you learn, the less you know. And so if you take that premise, you can learn from anybody. So everybody in your life, in in reality, is a sensor. If you can take that information and process it, you're going to have better decisions, which create better outcomes. What does a typical day look like for you? A normal day is built around our goals, right? So I take our our revenue sold goals uh, relatively seriously. And so wake up, coffee, make sure I get the the kids transferred over to the wife. I take care of them in the mornings. So I'm feeding bottles. And then uh, my day usually starts for work around 7, 7.30. So what time does your day start? I'm usually up about 4.45, 5. You read email the second you wake up? Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, 100%. As soon as I get up, phones, both phones, personal and work are in my hands. I check on the girls and then I start checking emails, take the dogs out for a walk in the morning, feed them make bottles. As soon as I'm done making bottles, usually I get about a 20 to 30 minute window of, of silence. And then, uh, then the girls wake up. And how many meetings do you have per day typically? Uh, I can't even imagine probably 15 ish meetings, depending that are on the calendar, usually double book, triple book, even as of last week, I had five meetings within the same hour. So I had to pick and choose, (laughs) uh, what, which one I was going to attend. Did you just have it tabbed open since now it's all virtual where you just like flip, flip, flip. Yeah. Usually I'm, I can multitask and call into multiple meetings, especially if it's, you know, via Skype or if there's a PowerPoint presentation being briefed, I can usually call in from one phone, dial in on my computer on one. 
you know, cause a lot of the meetings that you attend these days, you, you're not the sole participant or the key leader that needs to, needs to engage. It's usually for situational awareness. So for the ones that I have to engage that I, it is either a one-on-one or I'm central. Those are obviously the ones that get put on the top of the radar. Do you have any time to think at all? Do you do deep thinking? Deep thinking. I think that's when I take my dogs out. Yeah, absolutely. I deep think. A 20, 30 minute walk, it's usually cold outside. So I get to enjoy clarity of thought and think about what, you know, what are my objectives for the day? You went straight into the military from high school? I did. I did. I saw a commercial on TV during the summer after I graduated high school and it said, accelerate your life. And it was very market driven. You know, it had Navy SEALs jumping off ships and into the water and shooting guns. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to accelerate my life. So two weeks later, I was, uh, I was gone. I was in boot camp. Were you already planning on going off to college? I had already started college, actually. It was community college and it was Gwinnett Technical College. Okay. Uh, it was the county that I was from. It's like a local community college. So you grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta? Yeah, right outside Atlanta. Stone Mountain, Lilburn is. Oh, nice. What did Randy and your parents think about this? I think my parents were probably hesitant at first, but I think they were excited all in the, and nervous at the same time. What branch did you go into? Maybe. I was a cryptologist. So you just go off and sign up. For how many years did you sign up for? Four years. So I did four years. Um, took me to Chicago. Then I went to Pensacola for A school to learn collection. What's A school? It's the Navy's like uh, first shot across the bow for your MOS. So whatever you sign up for is your job. is called your MOS. And the school that I chose was a cryptologic technician R, which is for collection. So that school is in Pensacola, Florida. And then if you score in the top 10%, you go to sea school before you go to the fleet, which took me to Sierra Vista, Arizona to learn Morse code. You would think it's not a significant means of communication, but in third world countries, it's still uh, heavily used. And so, yeah, I spent almost eight months in Sierra Vista you know, with headphones on my head listening to Dits and Daws. Now, what did Randy go off and do? So my brother is a builder. He builds homes. So completely different. What was the hardest thing you had to adapt to being in the military? Or did you just love it all? The food. The food was horrendous. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it was discipline. In reality, I probably needed the discipline. Uh, given you know an 18-year-old at that time, the hardest thing was for me to keep my mouth shut when <laughs> you know somebody was telling you what to do in your face and yelling at you. It's one of those things that's illogical, but you have to, you have to own it. Did you have a hard time taking orders too? I did. I think I, think I still do. Yeah, I think you're very entrepreneurial that way. Where yeah. You, you have a lot of good ideas. Yeah. So, you know, so we'll see. I still, I still haven't <laughs> figured out what I want to be when I grow up. So we're getting there. What prompted you to leave the military? Yeah, I was actually deployed. Um, it's called RIMPAC. It's an exercise that the military does. And there was a CEO of a company that had just started. He was a one-man CEO. And he asked me, hey, would you ever consider uh, getting out and, and joining my firm? And I was like, actually, ironically, I'm getting out in about 60 days. I would love to consider that. And so when we pulled back in, we set up a meeting in his office, went and met him, gave me an offer letter, and I spent almost nine years at the company. Why did you think this was a good next move? Like, What was appealing about it to you? You know, being in the cryptology field, there's a lot of moving pieces as far as capability and you don't really understand what the industrial base does for that community until you kind of deep dive with somebody that's not in the shop that you work in. And so having him come in and explain what he did relative to the systems that we worked on 
was incredibly intriguing. And so he was the developer of some of the software and some of the capabilities that we were actually deploying and using. And so in conversation, he asked if I wanted to be a part of that on the other side of the fence. And that was just appealing to me at the time. Were you ever worried about your income being the second person at a one-man company? I honestly think I was so young that when I saw the offer letter, it was way more than I was making in the military. What was your salary in the military? I remember it wasn't that much. So I'll never forget. My my offer letter was for $59,500 a year. And it was way more than I was making in the military. Did it come with benefits? Did you even have healthcare? Oh, 100%. 100% healthcare, 10% 401k match. They They contributed 10% even if you didn't. So yeah, I mean, it was fully paid for. So this man comes on a ship and he's like, come meet me. I need some help. Did he know business really well? He was an engineer. He was an engineer. He was a former Marine Corps uh, signals intelligence enlisted guy. So he, he had kind of been around the block. And um, you can tell when you meet somebody that it doesn't equate to them being you know a Harvard grad, but you can tell this guy can run circles around you know most MBAs. And what was your job like to start with? Did you do all the things? We wore a lot of different hats. Yeah, I mean, as I mean, as a startup, you got to think you're you're wearing a lot of different hats. But I was mainly customer focused. So in that, I became a you know a test engineer, uh, a systems engineer. So I was an engineer. I helped grow the company. You know, working with customers. That was eight years of my life was deployed going to, you know, NSA, Texas, Hawaii, Maryland. Uh, And that's where I really got to kind of truly understand how what we were working on worked, how it all fit together. What do you think looks like customer success when you're working with the government or military? When they're going to open up to you what their hard challenges and problems are. Success doesn't come with, you know, roses and, you know, parades. It comes with a customer trusting you to open up and not be so compartmentalized to allow you to listen to what their challenges are because they know that most likely you or your organization is going to be able to help them solve those problems. I talk about it even from a simplistic perspective of like, they look happy when you're there. (laughs) Like they don't look like, oh, this guy (laughs) showing up, right? Like there's a positive emotion because they also feel like you were there to actually help. Sure. Being a KPI and metrics nerd, It's hard to measure customer satisfaction. We're not sending out net promoter scores to the government. And it's hard because often they have to continue working with you or they might not give you feedback, right? So how do you measure if you're doing a good job or how do you get these indicators that it's going well? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. There's no instantaneous gratification uh, in this line of business. Or if there is, it's very, very short-lived. So the one thing that I would offer is just having those customers trust you. At the end of the day, when they're in your domain and they're talking to you, whether it's about you or your work, that trust is a commodity that's truly priceless. And it takes a long time to build, but a relatively short time to be ignored and to not be relevant. So you have to maintain that relevancy at all times. What do you think are some tips on how to do that well? I think it's just listening. When you have organizations that will come in, usually they are selling something related to their company or a product. But in reality, they're not taking the time to understand what those challenges are. They're not understanding what the customer is actually trying to achieve as what success looks like for them. And if companies did a better job at listening to what their customers' challenges were, they'd have better product offerings. As someone who talks a lot, how did you get good at listening? 
it's from my mother. And I had a kindergarten teacher that uh, told me that I needed to think before I speak. Uh, Miss Barfield, <laughs> the smartest people in the room are the ones that listen. And you can usually tell the people that get things done are not the ones that are front and center as the you know critical mouthpiece to you know an organization or a group of people. It's usually the person that's quiet, relatively subdued, because you can give better advice. You can give better direction if you truly, truly listen. Now, how does this look from a gender perspective? Because women are often told to sit at the table and to speak up more and to be more confident. So how does a woman come across as smart or competent if she's being quiet and listening? Women make themselves known in my day-to-day, every day. Parsons, especially, you know, we have leadership that is Carrie Smith. She's the chief operating officer of Parsons, and she will command a room. Make no mistake about it. But it's not because she speaks. It's because she listens and she truly understands what's going on within the business. And then when she does speak, it's with precision in what to do. I find that the men that I work best with have always treated me not like a man or not like a woman, just as a person of value. How did you help grow that first business? And that first business sold? Yeah, so grew to a little over 100 people. And by that time, I had moved to Washington, D.C. to set up their office. I was working at Coast Guard headquarters here. And the organization was acquired uh, about a year after I got here in D.C. The one thing that I would say that I learned at that company is leadership. The gentleman uh, who was the CEO, his name's Todd Reach. You cannot ask for a better leader uh, of people than him. And so really, he's kind of been the guiding light in my professional career to emulate. And so that's not only from engaging with customers to growth to how to take care of your people. The list goes on from a professional standpoint. So after his company sold, were you worried? How did you find your next job? It was just happen chance. A friend of mine had worked uh, for another organization that was working on a, a very unique program, supporting SOCOM. And so I got asked to come on to that company. And then short thereafter, was asked to become the program manager of that specific program. So you join a company as program manager. How big was the project? Uh, I think there's about 70 people in the project. Oh, big. Yeah. And you weren't even deputy program manager? Quasi-deputy manager. So they brought me in probably a couple months after I had joined and, and asked me to take over and run the program. So you take over a 70-person effort. It was a very unique organization. And so I got to see, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, how to do things, how to not do things. And I think it was probably one of the best business lessons that I ever learned uh, was spending a couple of years at that specific organization. Well, how did you end up in a capture position? How did I end up meeting you working on proposals and talking to small businesses to see who would be the gap fillers for a specific proposal? A shared friend, Janet Schoenfeld, took a chance on me because uh, somebody had referred me to KW. They said, you know, this guy would be really fit for this position that you guys are hiring for. And so I came over and met Janet uh, and a couple other people and there it went. And so that was my first kind of like shot across the bow in an official overhead indirect position doing business development at scale. I mean, I had done it my entire career from a small business to another small business, but never in an official capacity. And was your official job to almost interview the small businesses and start putting us together as we meet potential requirements? Yeah, it's, it's one of the uh, aspects of the job is to really kind of understand those customer challenges and then start putting your value and your solution together. And so part of that process, you know, whether it's gap analysis or otherwise, 
lends an organization to realizing they need external help. And so in that case, small businesses. So hence the reason that we met and we're sitting across the table, that was to fill a gap for a solution that we needed to deliver uh, as far as one of our proposals. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA certified 8A hub zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. So imagine there's many small business owners out there working in BD or Capture. What is the number one way that they can work to become a subcontractor with a large business? What should we be doing to sell ourselves to a large business? So I think it's no different than you know understanding your customer's challenges, right? So again, nine times out of 10, small businesses come into large organizations and they try to sell them or pitch them on their capabilities, which are usually commoditized. And so in the sense of how can you become a better sub, it's really providing a distinct advantage. So in the case of Nyla, from a, let's just say a data science perspective, data science is, is, you know, quote unquote, a buzzword, but specifically related to data science, Nyla does X, Y, and Z. And so being able to explain that X, Y, and Z at a deeper level than others is how you provide that value. Because at the end of the day, you know, larger organizations, again, are trying to fill gaps and small businesses can, in some cases, help them get there. Uh, and in some cases, detract from that. So I think at the end of the day, really having a partnership with the organization that you're working with is one, is crucial. Uh, but two, really understanding how your organization aligns with their objectives. Because they need, they need to have true alignment for both parties to really mutually benefit. So what's the best way for a small business to come in and even do that talk? I find it's like you maybe get a meeting, you finally have a meeting and then that's it. It's like the whole thing is judged in 15 minutes. What, from your perspective as a big company, is an ideal meeting of a small business? I think it's relationships. We could meet with 50 to 100 different organizations in the span of three to six months, right? I mean, I can't even tell you how many business cards of organizations that I've met with that I will most likely never engage with ever again. Not to the fact of it's a bad thing, but at the end of the day, those organizations were relatively commoditized and didn't necessarily provide unique capabilities that align to something that a customer that we support today may need. But if they do, then I will definitively remember who that person was because it was unique and it stood out and it did provide distinct or unique capability comparative to their peers. 
What is Parsons large business differentiators and core services? What attracted me to Parsons, one was people. And so a lot of, I think the open market doesn't realize that Parsons is a $4 billion ESOP. So at the end of the day, I think the culture internally is radically agile because of it being an ESOP. And I think that culture is not recreated outside of many organizations of this size. So it's a $4 billion company, you know, 16,000 plus employees doing business uh, internationally all over the world. That is the differentiator and the fact that we can bring capabilities to bear on customers' challenges um, because we have innovators and we have the ability to harness. So I'll give you an example. So when COVID hit, Parsons uh, internal team said, hey, we want to develop a capability to aid in uh, COVID-19. Um, and something called DetectWise was what that uh, eventual product offering was. And so obviously being patriotic in its uh, purest form, but also a business decision to make sure that we aligned our offering to what was going on at the time. I think that agility and kind of disruptive nature is why Parsons is successful at the end of the day. And what are the core services that Parsons really focuses on? It's really a federal portfolio and a critical infrastructure portfolio. So uh, I'll speak to the federal portfolio, really driven between three or four different markets. Uh, We have a cyber intelligence practice, which primarily focuses on uh, the intelligence community uh, and DOD service components related to a cyber uh, perspective. Then we have a missile defense and C5ISR group, which is the group that I work in now, primarily focused on MDA, uh, the Army and the Air Force. And that's uh, a myriad of capabilities from integrated air and missile defense to directed energy to command and control, software development, data fusion analytics, etc. And then we have our spatial group, which if you're familiar with a group called OG Systems, is an acquisition that Parsons made in 2019, heavily focused at uh, NGA, but then was acquired with Braxton in uh, 2020. It's a combined group that is now our space and geospatial group providing services uh, across the landscape of space uh, and geospatial capabilities. So whether it's airborne sensors or uh, launch integration, it's kind of an A to Z space and geospatial organization. And then there's engineered systems, uh, which is really Parsons legacy services, but for federal customers. I have definitely felt from a small business perspective and continued relationship that Parsons treats its people very well because their interactions with us as a small business have been wonderful across the board. So it really doesn't matter who we deal with. It's been a very positive and pleasant interaction, which sometimes doesn't happen when you're dealing with large businesses. You can feel the energy and the high degree of respect they have for all people, which sometimes a large business treats small businesses adversarial or, oh, you're one of like a bunch of Chinese restaurants that I'm going to order from that were interchangeable versus, yes, you might be interchangeable, but <laughs> you're still a human being picking up the phone, trying to make a living and really provide value. Because honestly, when you start a small business, you're definitely not doing it to make more money Because in the beginning, you're not, and you're not for a long time. And if you're going to do it well and be strategic, you're going to keep investing that money. So if you want a high take-home pay, you're actually better off being an employee for a long time and, you know, maybe investing it in passive income. What advice 
would you give to a young person starting out their professional career today? Or even just advice to your younger self? Don't be afraid of change. You have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think for you to truly grow, not only as a person, but as a professional, you can't be afraid of change. We can't be afraid of change of a role. You can't be afraid of a change of an organization. Because in each one of those scenarios, you learn something. And whether it's good or whether it's bad, usually the bad you don't recreate again and the good you will sustain and repeat hopefully over and over again. And I think that's one of your major strengths is you really look at each thing as an opportunity and you kind of roll up your sleeves and you smile and you're like, all right, and you're a quick study. So I think that's been your strength as you've gone from being in the Navy to being a systems engineer, test engineer, to working capture, right? You have a attitude of optimism about it, not just on how does this equate to long-term monetary things, but a real excitement and passion for your new job, even if you're not officially trained or ready for it, you just throw yourself into it. Yeah, you have to. I mean, at the end of the day, most organizations are true meritocracies. So results speak for themselves. And if you're able to deliver tangible results, Usually an organization or people within the you know, leadership change uh, recognize uh, and truly reward that, whether it's monetary or otherwise. How do you think people can get comfortable being uncomfortable? You have to understand the position you're in. At the end of the day, people sometimes may not know what's truly important for the role that they're in. In my specific role, it's making sure that we achieve our business plan. And there's obviously a bunch of other things uh, that are associated with that. But the goal for me is very clear. I need to meet my business plan for the organization. And so knowing that objective keeps me very, very focused on what I need to do and what's important and what's not. Yeah, because there's so much you can get busy with every single day. You literally could spend your whole day just in those meetings that don't add up to value, but it's this core anchor of what am I really trying to achieve versus getting busy. Was there something you'd go back and do differently? I learned a great lesson. If you don't know something, don't act like you do. Because you're going to get called out and it's not going to be beneficial for you in the short term uh, or the long term. Somebody once said, uh, it's a long road to wisdom, but it's a short one to be ignored. It's a great (laughs) quote because to that point, it takes a lot uh, to build up your reputation, but it takes only a little to knock it down. I heard this quote. Tim Ferriss interviewed Malcolm Gladwell, and Malcolm Gladwell had a dad who was a PhD in something science or technical, and his father never had a problem asking people questions and being very curious, and that led to his freedom to just constantly be curious and to assume he didn't know things, was learning that from his father. But I think my advice to young people would also be your boss may not know the answer, right? There's not someone out there who distinctively knows the answer sometimes because either it's never been done before, your boss has never used this technology or solved it in this way, right? There's not always someone else who's holding back some mythical answer for you at work and is testing you. Now, sometimes they do know, right? And they, you know, asking them can provide that, but sometimes you just got to try a couple different things and do the Google searches as well, because your boss would have to do the same stuff of like, oh, let me like Google that and see 
I think about that when we're working with new software all the time or implementing things that are unique and specific to our business. Well, it hasn't been done that way before. So I don't know. And I'm not working on implementing it. You are. So you tell me. You figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like anything in life. It's not binary, right? It's not ones and zeros. And there's not a perfect way to get to what success looks like. So you just got to try it, right? And that's part of, I think, being comfortable being uncomfortable, right? There's yeah. no right answer. If there was, somebody else would be doing it for you. I definitely think the people who are the most successful are the ones who are most uncomfortable being uncomfortable. And that's why it looks easy from the outside because they're just comfortable being a beginner again and trying something new and keep trying until they become proficient at it. Yeah. I mean, you should always take a role that intimidates you. I would ask any CEO or COO or you know significant growth leader within my market if they were comfortable and ready to take on the job that they had. I think first... And forward, they would say, yeah, I was absolutely ready. But internally, they were probably scared. Yeah. They probably feared it, whether it's, you know, being right or having people not understand, you know, what you're doing. At the end of the day, they were ready and they took it, uh, took a challenge. And whether they were successful or not, they stepped up to the plate and, and took on a role that probably scared them a little bit. What were some of the best decisions you think you made along the way? I think really understanding how small organizations work versus how larger organizations work. In a larger organization, it's not just only a meritocracy. You're playing, I'm not going to say a political game, but you always have to have an advocate that I think is above you and below you. My advice is like when the door is closed, you can't just have one advocate. I actually think that's dangerous because that actually puts the person who's advocating somewhat marginalized. You need to have multiple people advocating for you. You got to have a lot of irons in the fire, but not too many that you can't handle. And I think at the end of the day, that's one lesson that I learned in how to maneuver and work within a large organization. But I think more importantly, you have to have people that work for you that you could envision being in the position that you're in. You can always be promoted, but if they can't promote you, especially when you take on a larger, more important role, you're not able to be promoted unless you have somebody that can fill your you know, shoes with equal or greater value. You know, that's where the mentorship uh, leadership comes in and being able to bring somebody that works for you or works in a connected group that can come work with you and, and eventually fill your roles in some sort of succession plan. Now, you have a pretty big side hustle going on. How did that come about? So my mom and dad have invested in real estate pretty much my entire life. And so the fact that my brother became a a general contractor and he started building houses, I said, well, why can't we do it together? And so, you know, we buy houses, we renovate them, we'll sell them. We have some that we're long-term holders in. You're long-term holders in houses or in apartments or condos? Houses. Uh, we're probably going to be moving into multifamily units, um, but right now they're all single family homes. Now, how's it working between two brothers? Like, is it 50-50 or is he like, I'm fixing it up, so just give me the money? Each one is different. In some, we have a third partner, actually. And so they're separate LLCs. In some cases, we're you know, 50-50. In some cases, it's 33-33-33. Are your parents in it as well? Or is it just between you and your brother largely? It's just usually me and my brother. But my dad is more of a real estate mentor to both of us. Did your parents share a lot about it growing up? Did your parents bring you in and teach you it? 
I think it was more just observation. Real estate is a fickle beast. Every every property or transaction is fundamentally different. So it's just something that I think I learned and watched along the way. Now, how has it affected your relationship with your brother? Yeah, I mean, it, it has its ups and downs. Make no mistake <laughs> about it. You know, when you're dealing with higher dollar value transactions and schedules, and you know, me being a very focused person, uh, sometimes that doesn't align to the construction world and how things are managed. And so, you know, for that, we'll we'll leave those to bear. Tell me something about yourself that might surprise us. I donated bone marrow. So I received a phone call from the DOD bone marrow registry. And there is a former DOD member that had myelogionis. So he had leukemia and they said, hey, you're the closest match to him. And so would you be willing to come get tested? So they flew me out to Georgetown, did a bunch of tests, said, yep, you're the closest match. How'd they do a test? Well, it was a blood test, and then they do like a basically a like a extremely thorough physical. So, like the whole treadmill thing, hook you up to their hearts, blood test, oh, really? you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I donated bone marrow. It was definitively the most painful thing that I've ever gone through. Did you get to know who the person was? No, it's completely anonymous. So I never knew who he was. Wow. Yeah. So you literally helped give some of your life to save someone else's life. Yeah. Right. Wow. Did they deep. ever give you an update like that the dude lived? He did live for an additional year, uh, but unfortunately he passed away after a year. So I gave him another year on life. Well, time is the most valuable thing. That's precious. Well, Robert, what is next for you? I'm very happy in the role that I'm in. You know, we'll continue to evaluate uh, what the next role is for me, depending on what's offered, you know, internally here at Parsons. Eventually, uh, yeah, I make no quandary. I would like to be the CEO of a uh, of a large organization. Nice. Me too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> then we can be competitors instead of friends. Touche. Now, why do you want to be a CEO someday? It's the challenge, right? It's the ambiguity of the role. There's obviously a defined role for CEOs, I think, in, in modern businesses. But again, there's no, there's no written handbook in how to be a CEO or how to be a leader. There's tons of articles. There's tons of information out there. But until somebody is a true leader, when you have people that will follow you, then you know you're a good leader. And until then, that's a challenge that I just take on on a daily basis and to how to be a better leader. A favorite book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's about being a CEO of a company and not always knowing the answers or having to make these very hard decisions and how there is kind of no book to answer exactly what you should do at that time. And Sometimes you're making a choice between two crappy decisions and trying to figure out what the best decision is. And there's some decisions you can make and you can always pivot and change course. And then there's some decisions that are relatively concrete. But at the end of the day, it's about being data-driven and making the best decision for the organization for the long term. I always wanted to be a CEO. Mainly, I thought I would be good at it. I use this analogy of, I see people run marathons and I look at them and I'm like, that seems really hard. It's very unappealing to me to run a marathon. I could maybe do it, but it seems hard. It seems like I wouldn't get in the flow. But I had always had this gut feeling that being a CEO would be like in the flow for me. So I don't look at it as CEO equals success because I don't think that that's the right choice for everyone. It's kind of a certain amount of crazy. It takes a certain personality set. But yeah, I, I always looked at it as like, oh, that seems fun. I could do that. I would like that challenge. That's my professional goal is not really the money because 
you know, you could just keep investing in houses and have an easier life than being a CEO of a large business. Being a CEO doesn't necessarily equal retirement and more time with the kids, but the challenge is out there. Maybe you could do it. And could you do it better? I don't know. Sometimes when you get to be a CEO, I'm assuming it's not about being coin driven anymore. It's about the challenges of success because most CEOs are highly compensated uh, before they become CEOs. So it's not about the money. Obviously, money is a major driver for, for a lot of people, including CEOs. But at the end of the day, I think it's the challenge, right? It's to wake up and to be on the grind. Well, it's been interesting for me to see even my transformation. I was the IT department. <laughs> so when employees came on, I literally was like, here's your email account. And now you need to change your password. And then I would have a sync with them to make sure they could read their email on their phone. Now I have a burgeoning IT department and cybersecurity section. And I have to make sure that I'm providing the right movements for our ship and that the direction is pointed in the right way so that we're not doing a bunch of things fast the wrong way. And that's been an interesting transformation. You don't get to do the work. You have to encourage others and make sure others are well set up to do the work and that you're doing the right work that adds up over time as well. I think that's sometimes why engineers have a hard time running a business because you don't get to do the work. Now my work is really on, does my team have what they need to be successful? And when I started the business, I was an individual contributor. And worse than that, I was often an advisory role. So I was often just spouting off my opinions and then I didn't even actually have to make the decisions. So for me, it's been a very large transformation from, oh, we should do blah, blah, blah. But I didn't even get to implement or decide. And now everything I do is set up so that others can run without me. Being in the position that you were in, you become almost a transactionalist at the end of the day. And so to make that conversion into more of like a servant leader, it's hard. It was a challenge that I even took on myself, right? Uh, In my previous role, very, very transactional in nature and having to convert into more of a servant leader. It takes time for you to understand that that's actually what's important for your future success, Uh, not only as a professional, but I think as an organization to meet your goals. But it's also important for the people that you're leading, uh, for them to understand that you are there to support them and not the other way around. From an innovation perspective, too. So the government is constantly looking for innovation within the government. How can we do things better and faster? And often innovation doesn't just come down to one brilliant inventor, though sometimes it does. But a lot of it is, is your organization innovative overall? And what does that look like? And how do I create a company that extracts and supports and realizes innovation and makes it come real and to life? So that's been an interesting challenge of like, what? how do you take something ephemeris as innovation and turn it into an organization having actual clear results of innovation and impacting our customer? Because we're not building the product. Nyla is a services company. Mm -hmm. So how do we take our innovation and apply it to our customers' projects and deliverables? When you think about innovation at its purest form, it's it's not something that you can grab. You know, it could be processes. It could be a framework. It could be 
people at the end of the day being innovative on a specific government program. If you're not able to harness what you're trying to achieve, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. I think the companies that have focus and really have that North Star uh, and kind of know where they want to go and are not dilutive to their own brand have a better opportunity to harness it. I'll give you an example. Amazon, for example, comparative to IBM. IBM has a, you know, whatever, 25 to $30 billion IRAD allowance comparative to, you know, Amazon. I don't even know what it is. But you can tell the innovation that's occurred at Amazon comparative to IBM over the years in just having the ability to harness that innovation, but also more importantly, getting it out to market at the speed of relevancy. Because if it's not in the hands of the people that need it when they need it, it's not relevant. So you can have the smartest people in the world and they could be innovating. But from a market standpoint, if you don't have alignment between what your innovation is and what the need is in the market at that time, there's misalignment and it's never going to be successful. Yeah. And I think that's a great example of how Amazon came to be a leader in cloud computing. There's Amazon known for its services and its exceptional customer service. And then in the background, they ended up becoming a dominant player in cloud services throughout the world for all developers and even to uh, the U.S. government. And they even put the new CEO of Amazon is not from Amazon, the store where I can buy everything. The new CEO is from the cloud services sector. Any last parting words before you take the dogs for a walk? No, I think uh, this was uh, very informative. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on Outspoken. Thank you for taking the time to largely be focused. I did have to tell him to close out his email browser, which was very hard for him. (laughs) I wish you all the best and look forward to talking to you and partnering together soon. Likewise, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.